Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Walt Disney Concert Hall and this concert by the Los Angeles Philharmonic and the great Michael Tilson Thomas, our hometown boy who has announced his retirement from San Francisco. Um, I've been saying all weekend that if you are seeking refuge from the 24-hour news cycle and impeachment hearings and Brexit, this is the place for you. <laughs> You're going to have some nice... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We'll have some nice music. Some nice music this afternoon. Well, you're probably wondering what in the world I'm playing and why I'm playing it. Well, it's actually a 1925 recording of the great Russian bass Fyodor Chelyapin singing the farmer's traditional worker's song, Dubanushka. And if you have looked at your program, you notice that the first piece on the program is Dubanushka by Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. The title of the piece, Dubanushka, refers to the diminutive form of Dubunka, which is an, a brand, an oak branch, a tree from, a, from an oak tree. And Dubanushka is the smaller one. And there are a couple of different um, definitions of it or uses for it. One was uh, when it was sort of more sturdy, it was used by the peasants as a uh, tool to root, to get root vegetables out of the ground. And if you whittled it down enough and it was long enough, then the landowner would use it as a switch to, to beat the peasants in Russia during the 19th century. Well, the, the text of this particular song is, hey, Dubanushka, the green one, hey, you help us do the hard labor. We pull it, we pull it, and we move it. The canny Englishman invented tons of gadgets as to do all the labor for them routinely, but we Russian men strive with hands till they're death, deathly tired. Then they sing to their hearts, Dubanushka. Well, in 1904 and 1905, there were a series of um, protests revolts throughout all of Russia, but on January 22nd of 1905, 200,000 people, peasants, uh, intellectuals, and students gathered in front of the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg to protest the conditions, especially of the serfs in the, out in the country. And they were led by a charismatic priest by the name of Georgi Kompan. And they peacefully assembled and they were all carrying icons that they had brought from their home or from their place of worship. And even though Tsar Nicholas II and his family weren't, were not even in the Winter Palace, there were armed guards sent out and some arguments ensued and some of the guards fired into the crowd and some some number of these protesters were killed. By that time, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, who was a revered composer and one of the members of the so-called mighty handful of nationalist composers who include the likes of Modest Mussorgsky and Alexander Borodin, by that time he was a member of the faculty at the St. Petersburg Conservatory 
and in uh, an attempt to voice his opposition to the shootings and to the violence, he wrote an open letter to the newspapers. And in his memoir, uh, Rimsky notes that the political ferment had seized the entire city. And rightly or wrongly, Korsakov was immediately associated with the protesters, and he and a fellow composer who had also voiced opposition to the protests, Alexander Glazunov, they were both fired from the St. Petersburg Conservatory. Well, during the months that followed the revolution and the firing of Rimsky and Glazunov, both of them decided to orchestrate a traditional workers' song. Glazunov's contribution was of a song that is much better known in this country than the Dubanushka, and that is the song of the Volga boat boatmen. Both Rimsky's Dubanushka and Glazunov's Song of the Volga Boatmen were performed in a concert in November of 1905 in St. Petersburg, by which time Glazunov and Rimsky had both been invited back onto the faculty. And Glazunov, um, Glazunov did go back onto the faculty, but Rimsky-Korsakov noted that the atmosphere at the conservatory was still so toxic that he was not going to rejoin the faculty. He didn't really need the job anyway. He was very well, well known and very well uh, respected, and he had only a couple of uh, years to live, so he did not uh, return to the conservatory where he had been for many years. Well, the cheerful-sounding march that Rimsky-Korsakov wrote or the arrangement of the traditional workers' song that Rimsky did, uh, which is going to open the program this afternoon, would not, on first hearing, give you any inkling of the circumstances under which it was written. March that you're hearing now gives away to a, a kind of a center lyrical uh, section that uses the same melody treated differently, more, more lyrically. And then there's a return to this march section for a big climactic ending. Rimsky-Korsakov, who was always kind of self-deprecating, said, as much as Glazunov's piece proved magnificent, just so much did my Dubanushka prove short and insignificant even though sufficiently noisy. And it is a noisy piece, I can tell you that, having heard it the other day. Well, during the first part, or the earlier part of the 19th century in Russia, if you were a young musician wanting to become a composer 
or a violinist or a pianist or any kind of professional musician, you had a hard time because there were no particular conservatories or places for formal training for musicians in Russia during much of the 19th century. You would typically go to Berlin or Leipzig or Paris. But in 1862, the Russian pianist and composer Anton Rubinstein started the St. Petersburg Conservatory. And the conservatory was headed by Gla uh, Rubinstein until 1867, at which point a man by the name of Nikolai Zaremba took over. And then following that, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov himself became the head of the conservatory. And it became a very, very famous place. Rimsky really put it on the map. But graduates from the St. Petersburg Conservatory include George Balanchine, Sergei uh, Diaghilev, Yasha Heifetz, Nathan Milstein, Dmitry Shostakovich, Sarah Prokofiev, and the, and the list goes on and on. Well, Tchaikovsky entered the conservatory in 1865, long before Rimsky had ever um, become associated with it. And under Anton Rubinstein, the conservatory in St. Petersburg was a very conservative place. They, uh, they taught music uh, using essentially German and French models, and the emphasis was really on the classical approaches to composition and to for performance. There wasn't much emphasis on being Russian or trying to write music that sounded Russian. And there's always been this kind of um, split between the composers who were more associated with nationalism, such as the, the group of five, Mussorgsky, Borodin, Kui, Rimsky, and Tchaikovsky, who was always thought of as being somehow apart. Well, Tchaikovsky really managed to forge a personal style that sort of blends the two by using particularly um, Russian folk melodic ideas and some harmonies that are associated with, with folk music. But on the other hand, Tchaikovsky is always somewhat more cosmopolitan than the, the, the mighty handful or the mighty five more European in some ways, because he tended to uh, compose in classical uh, forms, such as the piano concerto and the string quartet. During the 1870s, Tchaikovsky uh, composed a series of works that really signaled his first major successes, the first couple of symphonies, and in particular, the overture fantasy Romeo and Juliet. But this was also a time of increased anxiety for uh, Tchaikovsky, who was always suffering from severe self-doubt about his compositional skills and also deep-seated conflicts over his own sexuality. Tchaikovsky's closest confidant was his brother, Anatole, and one day Anatole records that his brother, Tchaikovsky, Tchaikovsky, who we know best, said, there is nothing more futile than wanting to be anything other than what I am by nature. In his later years, this um, kind of compositional self-doubt and these issues regarding his sexuality really led Tchaikovsky to deep depression and periods of compositional paralysis. But in 1874, he was still really quite a young man and trying out new ideas. And by that time, he was teaching at the Moscow Conservatory and writing criticism for a local 
journal and he hoped that maybe one more success after the Romeo and Juliet triumph might put him on the map and his hope was to quit the, quit the, the writing job and quit teaching and devote himself full time to composition. So he wrote this piano concerto in 1873-1874, he wasn't a particularly skilled pianist, and so he went to the, um, a member of the faculty at the Moscow Conservatory, Nikolai Rubinstein, who was the younger brother of Anton Rubinstein, who was up in St. Petersburg, and who was a, a gifted pianist himself. And he asked Nikolai Rubinstein to listen to the concerto, and so they set up a meeting on Christmas Eve of 1874, and a little while later, Tchaikovsky wrote the following in his notes about that meeting. He's, he writes, he asked me to play the concerto in a classroom of the conservatory, we agreed to it, and I played through the first movement, not a criticism, not a word. Rubinstein said nothing. I did not need any judgment on the artistic form of my work. There were really only quest some questions about mechanical details. Rubinstein's silence said much. It said to me at once, dear friend, how can I talk about details when I dislike your composition as a whole? <laughs> but I kept my temper and I played the rest of the concerto through. Again, silence. Well, I said, there burst forth from Rubinstein's mouth a mighty torrent of words. He spoke quietly at first, then he waxed hot, and at least he resembled Zeus hurling thunderbolts at me. It appeared that my concerto was utterly worthless, absolutely unplayable. The passages were so commonplace and awkward that they could not be improved. So only two or three pages were good for anything, while the rest should either be thrown away or radically rewritten. Well, Tchaikovsky stormed out of the room, embarrassed and also angry, and he only changed one thing in the score, and that was the dedication to Nikolai Rubinstein. <laughs> he did, however, send it off to another great pianist, the, uh, the German pianist Hans von Bülow who had been already acquainted with Tchaikovsky's music and who was touring Tchaikovsky's solo piano music around. He sent it to von Bülow with a revised dedication to von Bülow, <laughs> and he got a response back fairly quickly, and this is what von Bülow said. The ideas are so original, so powerful, the details are so interesting, and though there are many of them that do not, sorry, there are many of them, they do not impair the clarity and unity of the work. The form is so mature, so ripe, and distinguished in style. Intention and labor are everywhere concealed. I would weary you if I were to enumerate all the characteristics of your work, characteristics which compel me to congrat congratulate equally the composer and those who will have the joy to hear it. So how is this possible? Anton Rubinstein, great pianist, Hans von Bülow, great pianist, both great pedagogues. They were both the same age, almost exactly the same year, age, and they were both about 10 years older than Tchaikovsky. Well, the answer lies basically in 
um, musical point of view. Ant uh, Nikolai Rubinstein, like his brother Anton, was kind of an arch-conservative. He really taught and wanted to follow the traditions that had been handed down through the German school from Beethoven through Mendelssohn, Schubert, and Schumann, and that was what he was teaching at the Moscow Conservatory. Hans von Bülow, however, was something of, of a progressive, and he came to be associated with the progressives in, in Germany. He was a student of Franz Liszt, and eventually a champion of the music of Richard Wagner. Von Bülow, incidentally, was not only an early champion of Wagner's music, he was also the first husband of Cosima Liszt. Now, Cosima Liszt was the daughter of Franz Liszt and one Princess Marie Dagu. Cosima Liszt married Hans von Bülow. They lived happily for a time, but then Cosima fell into the clutches of Richard Wagner. She left von Bülow, eventually divorcing him and eventually marrying Richard Wagner, whereby Franz Liszt became the father-in-law of Richard Wagner. <laughs> and Hans von Bülow ceased being a champion of Wagner's music, and as a matter of fact, never spoke to Wagner again after that, after that time. Well, one thing that certainly would have, a, a, that would have made Rubinstein object to the piano concerto that Tchaikovsky played for him is the fact that the piano concerto was notated in B-flat minor. If you look in the program, you'll see it's a piano concerto number one in B-flat minor. And its most notable theme, its most beautiful soaring melody appears right after the opening, and it's not in B-flat minor at all, it's in D-flat major. Rubinstein certainly would have objected to the fact that this theme, prominently placed where every first theme of every piano concerto written since Haydn <clears throat> was presented, is, is presented and then elaborated upon in the manner of a first theme, and then it disappears and we never hear it again. It's completely gone. And it makes the whole concerto, in terms of classical structure, kind of lopsided. The main body of the first movement begins about five minutes after this, and it begins not with what you would think of as, as a soaring romantic theme, but kind of a jittery, nervous, jumpy passage work, but it's actually an arrangement of a Ukrainian folk song that Tchaikovsky uses for the first main theme section of the concerto.
Tchaikovsky goes on, as one would expect, to, to write a second primary theme for the first movement of this concerto. It's a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful lyrical theme and features uh, a, a kind of a sighing motive, which is very characteristic of Tchaikovsky's music um, throughout his career. It's one of his kind of little signature moves. familiar with this kind of a motive um, from pieces like the Romeo and Juliet Overture, which Tchaikovsky had just composed a couple of years earlier. Here's another look at Tchaikovsky's sigh motive. The second movement of the concerto begins with a beautiful uh, uh, solo for the flute with pizzicato string accompaniment. But the, the more playful middle section of the second movement raises a couple of interesting little bits of information about Tchaikovsky and about the concerto. Here's the section I'm talking about. There was a Belgian soprano by the name of Desiree Artaud, who was traveling around Europe in the late 1860s and 18, early 1870s, and she made her way to Moscow. And one of the favorite pieces in her repertoire was a, a saucy little uh, chanson in French that has the title Il faut s'amuser et rire. It, it, you must um, have fun or laugh and uh, have fun and laugh. And the tune of this French chanson it's exactly the same as that middle section of the uh, second, second movement. Well, Artaud visited Russia in 1868 and met Tchaikovsky at a party and the two of them became extremely close, very fast friends, to the point where they were visiting one another almost on a nightly basis for a period of some months. There was even talk briefly of marriage, but Desiree Artaud's mother put a stop to that for whatever her, her reasons might have been. But Tchaikovsky confided in his brother Modest that Desiree has exquisite gestures, grace of movement, and artistic poise. Well, Tchaikovsky's biographer, David Brown, points out that the beginning of the second theme of the first movement in includes a kind of a cryptic cipher of Desiree Artaud's 
name. And I don't want to get into the weeds on this too much, but Tchaikovsky would have used German notation uh, nomenclature. And in German, the note that we call D-flat is called des, D-E-S. And the first three notes of Desiree Artaud's first name are D-E-S, Desiree. Her last name begins with the letter A. And the, the big theme in the middle of the first movement is So it's essentially a kind of a cryptogram of Desiree Artaud's name. There's something even more interesting, and that is Tchaikovsky had his own little cipher for his own name. And again, you have to deal with the transliteration issues. But if you take the European, a common European spelling of Tchaikovsky's last name, which is not the way we spell it here, T-C-H-A-I, more common in Europe, you see C-H-A-I, like the, like the T, C-H-A-I. And if you take the first, one of the, the, the vowel in, in Tchaikovsky's first name, Peter, and use the E, and then you play C-B, which is spelled H in German, C-H-I, you have these notes. And if you play that in the key of B-flat minor, you have the opening of the concerto. So intertwined in the first movement are these little cryptograms of Desiree Artaud's name and Pyotr Tchaikovsky's name. Well, enough of cryptography. The, the, third, the third movement of the piano concerto, like the other two, uses Ukrainian folk songs. And Tchaikovsky, in this piece, uh, the main theme for the third movement is derived from a Ukrainian folk song, and you have to forgive my Ukrainian or Russian, Vudi Vudi Ivanku is the way I am going to pronounce it. Now, John Henkin in his notes writes one translation of this. I Googled, I used Google Translate, and when I put it in, what I got back, you won't believe it, but what I got back was, get out, get out, Ivanka. It's, no, 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 it's, it's true, I couldn't make this up. And you can, you can Google it yourself, and to prove it, here's, here's, the, here's the Ukrainian folk song. Tchaikovsky. Now, I'm going to be at the concert today, and if I see any of you giggling during this, <laughs> I'm going to come over and kick you out. No giggling. Well, history has not been very kind to poor Nikolai Rubinstein for his snooty reaction to Tchaikovsky's concerto, but he did get his comeuppance, and he actually re later repented in life. Von Bulow, as I said, embraced the piece, 
and performed the premiere, and you might be surprised to know that the premiere of the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto was performed not in Moscow, but in Boston. Von Brulo had been preparing a concert tour of America and just at the time when he got the piano concerto, and so he asked Tchaikovsky permission to premiere it in Boston, and, and Tchaikovsky scholars think that that was okay with him because of the reaction that he had gotten from Nikolai Rubinstein. He was a little bit nervous about pre pre premiering the piano concerto in his hometown, but he, von Brulo took it to Boston, and it was greeted with enormous enthusiasm, and, and history tells us that the very first telegram that was sent from Boston to Moscow was sent from von Brulo to Tchaikovsky, uh, congratulating him on the success of the piano concerto that was done at the premiere. In 1878, Rubinstein, or by 1878, excuse me, Rubinstein had also warned, warmed to the piece, and Tchaikovsky wrote, what was impossible in 1875 became thoroughly possible in 1878. Rubinstein became a champion of the piece and the two renewed their friendship and when uh, Rubinstein died in 1881, Tchaikovsky wrote uh, a wonderful piano trio and dedicated it to Rubinstein, but he sort of paraphrases Beethoven. If you, write, might, you might know that when Beethoven wrote the Eroica Symphony, it was originally intended as a, uh, and a, and a, as a tribute to Napoleon, but when Napoleon declared himself emperor, Beethoven famously took a, a, an eraser and scratched out Napoleon's name so so strongly on the title page of the manuscript that there's a, there's a hole in that manuscript. And underneath it, Beethoven wrote, to the memory of a great hero. And in the uh, dedication to the piano tr trio from 1881, Tchaikovsky wrote, to the memory of a great artist. So maybe he was, maybe he was channeling Beethoven there, I don't know. Well, like Igor Stravinsky, Aaron Copland is also known best for the ballet scores that he wrote when he was in his 30s and, and early 40s. Stravinsky, 1913, uh, 1910 to 1913, when he was in his early 30s, wrote The Firebird, Petrushka, The Rite of Spring, a few years later, Pulcinella. Well, when Copland was in his mid-30s, he really turned to his populist style and began writing the populist works El Salon Mexico, the ballet Billy the Kid, Rodeo, and then later Appalachian Spring. In 1942, the British conductor and composer Eugene Goossens commissioned a series of concert overtures performance for performance by the Cincinnati Symphony, which he was conductor of at that time. And Copeland writes, Goosens had written to me at the end of August about an idea he wanted to put into action for the 1942-43 season. During World War I, he had asked British composers for a fanfare to begin each orchestral concert. It had been so successful that he thought to repeat the procedure in World War II with American composers. As it turned out, Goosens commissioned 18 fanfares for that season with the Cincinnati Symphony, but none of them attained anything close to the popularity of Aaron Copland's fanfare for the common man. 
the idea for the fanfare actually didn't come originally from Goosens. Copeland talks about having the idea based on hearing the vice president, Henry Wallace, uh, in a speech from 1942. And in it, Henry Wallace talks about the freedom that the country is going to enjoy after it finishes off the, the struggle of the war in 1942. The end of the war was already being, you know, being predicted. And Henry Wallace proclaimed the beginning of the century of a, the common man. Henry Wallace was something of a, of a leftist, as probably most of you know, and Copeland was also something of a political leftist, and so his, he resonated with this, uh, this notion of Henry Wallace's. So the fanfare that came out of this, which was planted in Copeland's mind in 1942 and then came to fruition for the 42, uh, 40, excuse me, 44 season of Cincinnati, is his, probably his most recognizable piece. The Third Symphony was begun in the summer of 1944 and completed in 1946. Serge Kusevitsky, who was the conductor of the Boston Symphony at the time and who was so incredibly helpful and uh, important in Copland's early years, commissioned the piece for the Boston Symphony. So we have this kind of interesting connection between the Boston Symphony premiering Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto and the Copland Third Symphony. Um, the, the piece, though, um, was started during the war and wasn't completed until after the war was over. Copeland actually did not write much of the piece in New York, as you might expect. He was a lifelong New Yorker, but in fact, he started the work in Mexico, where he had gained inspiration for his first populist works, such as El Salon Mexico, and then later Billy the Kid, and the rest of them. And according to Copeland, Kusevitsky, quote, liked music in the grand manner. And while Copeland was contemplating the last movement of the symphony, he came across the idea of incorporating some material from the fanfare into the third symphony, and he sent a note to a wonderful composer, American composer by the name of David Diamond, a close friend of Copeland's, asking him about the idea. And David Diamond wrote back, make it a real knockout symphony, and do please use the fanfare material. So although he had worked, he'd begun working on the piece during the, um, during the war, it was at, well, not until after the war that it was completed, but Copeland said that the piece was intended to reflect the euphoric spirit of the country at the time. The symphony came along at a time when composers were just sort of beginning to rediscover the possibilities of the symphony, which during the first half of the 20th century in America was treated with kind of, kind of suspect. It was a European form. It was thought to be a little bit too artsy, and so there weren't a lot of American composers who were writing big symphonies during the first part of the 20th century, but 
composers such as Samuel Barber and Howard Hansen had all written um, large-scale symphonies, and so Copland sort of gained some courage to do this. And Serge Kusevitsky, who was never shy about superlatives, declared it to be the greatest American symphony ever written. And it was really treated as a musical landmark when it was presented for the first time. Copland writes, the opening movement is broad and expressive. There are three themes that are plainly stated. The first is in the strings at the very start without any introduction. The second in a related mood in the violas and the oboes. And scholars have traced back through some of Copland's sketches and realized that these two themes, which are separated and distinct in the symphony, began life as a melody and a counter-melody. And Copland then took them apart and treats them differently in the, in the work, although they're sort of tied together at the very outset. Here's how they sound. The second movement is kind of a modern take on the old um, uh, minuet and trio, or scherzo and trio in symphonies of Beethoven. It is, in fact, a scherzo, and Copland says it's a scherzo, then a middle uh, passage, or middle section called a trio, and then a return to the scherzo in which there's some variation. A brass introduction leads into the main theme of the scherzo, and it's presented three times at the outset, first in the horns and the violas, with a continuation by the clarinets, and then the second time in unison in the strings, and then the third time is presented in the low brass in what we call augmentation, that's slower note values. And I'm gonna play, it's quite short, I'm gonna play the three of them side by side with little breaks, so you can really get this theme in your, in your head and you'll be able to know what Copeland does with it during the piece. That's not it. First one, second one in the, in the strings. Third one. Copeland says that the third movement is the freest of all in terms of its form. It's just a beautiful kind of slow movement. The fourth movement is appropriately is called fanfare. And it is where that material from fanfare of the, of the common man appears. Copeland uses that material at first very, very quietly in the flutes and the clarinets. Mm -hmm. 
Copeland says that the fanfare serves as a kind of introduction to the fourth movement, which is uh, the longest of the three movements, and kind of an extended sonata form in which some of the themes from the first movement make a make a return appearance in the, uh, in the coda. I want to leave, leave you with this from uh, a two, 2014 article in The Guardian magazine written by Tom Service. There were many candidates for the Great American Symphony by the 1940s, among them recent works by Roy Harris, Samuel Barber, Barber and William Schumann, and yet by the end of the Second World War, there was still a need for a grand musical expression of a nation's hopes, joys, and anxieties about the po post-war world. And there remained a musical gap for a piece that would genuinely, genuinely galvanize the widest possible possible musical public as well as satisfy the stringent demands of what a popular but serious mid-century American symphony might be. Music that would take on the most symbolically European of forms and reform it in the image of a post-war, post-New Deal America. And that piece is Copland's third symphony and really has, it really has proven Kusevitsky right. It probably is the greatest American symphony written at least in the 20th century. So you're going to enjoy that. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you for your attention and have a great day.